Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Lisa Neymar, and our topic is dealing with the death of a child to leukemia. Lisa's 10-year-old son, David, was diagnosed with AML leukemia in 1996. Her life was never the same. David's protocol required three rounds of chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant donated by his 14-year-old sister, Rachel. David fought hard for two years until he passed away on August 6, 1998, from a lung infection. In David's memory, Lisa, who is a social worker, started the Healing Heart Foundation. The foundation mission is to help chronically, terminally ill children with their pain and to improve palliative care for chronically and terminally ill children. Lisa has also founded the David Center for Pain and Palliative Care at Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Lisa, and, and we're just really impressed with the, with the work you've been doing to help families and children. Before we talk about your foundation, could you tell us a little bit about David and his experience and your experience? Sure. Uh, David was a pretty amazing, normal little 10-year-old child who really played soccer, played hockey, loved life, and uh, started getting tired and lots of sinus infections. We had him at the pediatrician. They kept giving him the antibiotics. Turned out um, it wasn't really being tired and infections. It turned out to be leukemia, um, which we found, you know, Everybody's like, didn't you notice bruises? You know, you have a 10-year-old kid who's... Exactly, an active boy. An active boy, you know, and at 10, they're not letting you shower them anymore. It's true. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, we just thought he was tired. He yeah, I, I, I think it's cool. Yeah. It's so great um, that you're coming in with this right now early because I know our audience out there is going, oh, my gosh, I feel so guilty. I've oh. lost a child, and here you are early on expressing... How There's a lot of guilt. Was. There's a lot of guilt involved. You know, you're the mom. You're supposed to keep your child safe and sound, and you don't do that. You know, what kind of mom are you? And that's kind of what your identity is as a woman, as a mom. So what do you do with all of so that? So people are saying to you, didn't you notice, and you're taking David in and talk a little more Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. You, know, um, you know, we didn't, you know, we kind of explained, obviously, he's an active 10-year-old. Um, his... He was having trouble breathing. It turned out his lymph nodes were so swollen they were strangling his trachea. They, you know, he was admitted to the ICU immediately. Did a bunch of blood tests and kind of in the middle of the night came in and said, well, your son has leukemia. Ah. And we're kind of looking at him like, well, wait a minute. He was having trouble breathing. Where is this coming from? And obviously the next day, uh, the oncologist came in and told us he had AML leukemia, which is an adult form of leukemia that uh, children get. And the only way that this can be treated is with inpatient chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant. Mm, so you know, they dropped that right on you. Within the first 10 hours of knowing. Um, they did The next morning they did a bone marrow uh, biopsy, and at that time, put chemotherapy right into his spine. So we had about eight or ten hours, and we're like, to make these decisions. 
do we want to keep him here? What do we want to do? Do you know? Um, and my husband is a physician, so that kind of made it even more urgent. Like, okay, we really need to have good medical care here. We know what's going on. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was a torturous, you know, so, couple so days. So basically, you took a boy who maybe had an allergy problem or had asthma or who knows what, into the hospital, the next day he's got leukemia and he's on chemotherapy. Exactly. What and an incredible At that point, shock. the infection was so bad. He had 104 fever, and we were hoping he was making it through the night. Uh-huh. So you go from everything, you know, having, you know, the heat is on the table ready for dinner and all of us eating to, oh, my God, he's having trouble breathing. Let's go to the emergency room. And uh, obviously, that was my last normal day of an intact four-person family. Oh, what um, a shock! And, but, and I've got to say something that it's interesting in hearing your story. For parents out there that are listening, that are feeling guilty that they didn't recognize the signs, this is such a good example of how you really couldn't recognize the signs. Here, your son's father is a physician, right? And the signs were still not recognized. Yeah, there's no possible way to have known this other than right. taking a blood test. Okay. We had been at the pediatrician in the morning, mm-hmm. and the pediatrician wanted to do a blood test. And my son, being the negotiator that he was, said, can I please have 24 hours? I promise if I'm not better in 24 hours, I will come back 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and you can take my blood. Mm-hmm. And the pediatrician was like, fine. You know, I mean... We weren't, uh, none of us, I mean, the pediatrician, my husband, us, we didn't think that we were, you know, no one thinks you're dealing with a life-threatening exactly. disease. You know, your child has a cold, you're not going to the life-threatening disease. Well, and David was so healthy and playing sports. And yeah, oh, he was perfectly healthy, happy, happy kid with tons of friends, and um, so this was totally a surprise. Wow. Well, I know one of the things that uh, when I met you, um, at a conference for pediatric palliative care, I um, was impressed with the fact about your daughter um, giving him a bone marrow mm-hmm, transplant, Rachel. and yeah, Rachel. And how, how? Tell us how that happened, and and how that the family dealt with that, and how Rachel dealt with it. Well, it's pretty funny that it's Halloween because we all got tested on Halloween for uh, our uh, blood typing to see if she was a match. We had about a 25% chance that it would be her. Um, we were lucky enough that she was his match, a 10 for 10 match. That's amazing. They had the exact same DNA. I mean, mm-hmm. we, I mean, in all of the horrendous, you know, stuff about the leukemia, that was the little bright spot. And, um, you know, we sat and talked to Rachel and explained, you know, she was 14. No, you have a choice. You know, you can do this or not. And she looked at us like we were totally crazy and said, of course, this is, there's no doubt in my mind that I will be doing this. And, uh, it, he had to go through the three rounds of chemo before. You know, we, that makes me want to cry. <laughs> she, well, you know, she but was it's really so, heart rendering. She was so amazing about it. Because, and to think that she has the exact same DNA. I mean, there's something about that. That's, yeah, I, I mean, pretty phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, it's there's something that just that was the way it was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And um, she got very upset when people said, "Oh, you're a hero. You know, you're saving your brother." And 
she kept saying, I'm not the hero. He's the hero. Mm -hmm. He's the one that Mm -hmm. deals with the illness on a day-by-day basis. I'll have one day of pain. This is an accident of genetics that I can help him. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm part of this picture. But we all need to focus on him. And constantly would say that. Mm-hmm. Now, how how is she now, and how did she? Um, She's pretty amazing now. Yeah, I mean, it, it does it just impact? Does it impact her? Do you think that she has the same DNA as her brother? I, I think mean, it impacts her a lot. I don't think in a negative way. Mm-hmm. I think in a positive way. I, I, I think she positive. feels like she carries his spirit with her. Yeah, and has made a point that she is going to live her life to the fullest, no matter what. Um, she's a trapeze artist. That's what wow. she does. She is, um, as a matter of fact, just got to brag a little bit about my child yeah. who uh, just got accepted to the festival at uh, in Paris, the Cirque du Monde. Oh, my goodness. So she's going to be, it's like the Circus Olympics, and she's one of the only acts from the United States. Her and her boyfriend, Ben, they're duo Madrona, and... Uh, I'm so proud of her, and she just made a decision that she needed to follow her passion. And I'm so incredibly proud of who she is and what she's become, you know, being able to take in all of the the sadness and turn it into this positive. You know, um, that that's an, an amazing thing, isn't it, Heidi, about some of the siblings we well, interview on the show? Well, it's important, Lisa, for the parents out there to hear that your daughter has gone on to have an amazing life and do wonderful things and live a full life and become, there's, she's got strengths that other kids don't have because of what exactly. she's going through. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because when, I guess, about a month after David died, she wanted to go into New York City or something. Mm-hmm. And I was like, absolutely not. You can't do that. And she, like, got right into my face and she said, Mom, I didn't die with David. I'm alive, I'm here, and you're going to have to let me be me and walked away. And I think that made a huge impression on me because I realized that all I wanted to do was keep her, you know, hold on and tie her to her bed and keep her safe forever. And that would have been the worst thing that I could do. Because she is an only child now, right? Exactly. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was a teenager when, when David died. She was 16 when he died. Right. That's such a hard time for families, exactly what you're saying, the dynamics, Lisa, because teenagers are, are needing more autonomy, they're needing to separate, and parents get nervous and want to hold them closer. Exactly. And I, I'm lucky enough that she was independent enough to be able to say to me, I can't let you do this to me, and I'm not going to let that you do this to me. That means to have a normal childhood. Yeah. Now, did she have counseling to get to that, Lisa, or was she able to get there Minimal counseling. Um, we had done some family counseling right afterwards. She probably went for a couple months, and then she said, Mom, this isn't doing anything for me, and mm-hmm. I need to walk away from this. Mm-hmm. And she did, and she had a great support system. She had great friends, and, you know, we kind of let her do what she needed to do. Mm-hmm. So, so for the audience out there, I always say counseling is fine if you feel like you need to have counseling and, and there's nothing wrong with it. However, there's some people who won't benefit from it or don't want to do it, and some kids who they don't have to. No. Right. You know, I they mean, can still I mean, for on. her, it worked for a short period of time, and then she just needed to deal with it. I mean, she always knew that we were there if she needed anything, and that she could go to counseling at any time. It was an option that was there for her. 
but at that point, we didn't feel like we needed to push her. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm interested. You have uh, formed this uh, foundation, Healing Heart Foundation, and it's involved with pain and palliative care. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the pain that David had in that how do families deal with it after that memory of the pain and, and maybe how do you deal with the hospital how you know after a child dies um, if they didn't feel like they did it correctly or you know good mm-hmm. question you... because I think people can get into just being consumed by thinking about the pain their children were in at the end yeah um, pain was always an issue for David we were pretty lucky because we had um, Gary Walco, who was his pain specialist at Hackensack, who really taught himself hypnosis, he really was wonderful with him. But it still wasn't, it wasn't always managed. And I guess I felt like this is a child that should be managed 100% of the time. And it wasn't, um, you know. Yeah, there's I, no reason not to manage exactly. it. Exactly. Uh, now, did you, did you feel that he was terminally ill or did you, you know, continue? You continued with the hope that he'd recover, right? Right. I mean, he was in remission after the bone marrow transplant. He was doing great. And we thought we were kind of out of the woods. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what we found out was that the, the chemotherapy that they do before the bone marrow transplant had destroyed a piece of his lung. Mm-hmm. So that was more our, you know, our issue. I mean, obviously it was the leukemia that killed him, but not. it wasn't an active case. It was the complications. Now, was that a mistake that they made in your in your mind, and how does our audience deal out there that's sitting there with I what they feel like? I don't think that was a mistake. I think it was a risk that we took. Okay. Um, I think that when you sign your child up to have a bone marrow transplant, you know that they could die in the process. Um, but they're going to die if you don't do it. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, as a parent, you're between a rock and a hard place. When they hand you that, you know, 25-page document to sign with anything and everything that could happen to your child, mm-hmm. um, and you're signing this and you feel like, oh, my God, I just signed my child's life away, but if I don't sign it, I'm definitely signing my child's life mm-hmm. away. And that must have been devastating for the family, and I'm thinking for Rachel, here, David had been doing well, and it had been a successful bone marrow transplant. Right. And then, that you guys get this news. Yeah, it was. It was. Now, was he, did he get out of the hospital after the transplant? Oh yeah, he was in the hospital for about three months, and then uh, he was home for almost six months. Wow. You know, in and out, he was able to go back to school a little bit, and he was doing great. He had a little bit of graft versus host disease, which comes from. Um, you know the the way that he accepts Rachel's trans you know blood transplant, uh, so you know a little bit in his eyes and stomach. So, but we that was you know definitely dealable. Mm-hmm. Um, and but now, you know we're it is what it was. You know mm-hmm. now um, here your husband is he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was his specialty? Orthopedic surgery. Uh-huh. Are you your ex? Husband, right? My ex-husband. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, from the male point of view and from a doctor point of view, for our audience out there who have husbands who are doctors or ex-husbands, you know, what did you see in that? And also the men in grief. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I think it's really hard, especially for physicians who are used to being in control and 
going in, finding the problem, especially as an orthopedic surgeon. The bone is broken. You fix it. Mm-hmm. It's done. He couldn't do that for his son and um, kept a lot of his emotions inside. Mm-hmm. And it made it very difficult because you have to talk about it somewhere along the line. And, you know, most of the time we were okay and we could get through each crisis, but he found his solace in work. And that's where he put a lot of energy. Couldn't I? I mean, he loves his son and loved me with her heart and soul. But it was just very, very difficult. Well, I'm thinking uh, he also could run in and see him. Was he? Did he work at the same hospital? Mm, uh, when he was doing his initial chemotherapy, but not the bone marrow transplant. Uh, I was thinking, you know, you could run in and say hi, and then run to work. So right, <laughs> you, you could mean, really compartmentalize. He it saw him every way. day. I mean, that's not. I mean. We kind of made a decision when David first got sick that we were going to do dinner as a family every night. Oh, my goodness. Um, because we felt like we weren't going to lose that because David was in the hospital. So even if Rachel had a ton of homework, she knew she had to come at least for one hour so that the four of us could sit together. Even if David was asleep, the three of us at least had an hour. We knew we had an hour of quality family time every day. Uh, that's kind of amazing, isn't it, Heidi? It is. And I'm thinking, and I've heard these stories before, it must be very strange to have a routine and get to know the medical staff really well and have all these people in your life because they're all trying to save David's life and have all these rituals around you know, going to the hospital, et cetera, and then all of a sudden your son dies and not only do you lose your son, but you lose all these people in the medical community. Now talk to us about your hospital system and then your friends and family system. Talk us about people coming and going. Well, you know, people the people in the hospital become uh, the primary caregivers of your, of your child. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky because they kind of let me take part in that. And But they really become your family. They're the people you see day in and day in and, and night, you know, they're seeing you with the filthy, dirty hair and the, you know, pajamas you just walked out of bed with. So they see you at, you know, the good times, the bad times, and when so you're you really you sad, you're talking some- to them. You, sl- you slept there sometimes? I slept there every night. Oh, you did? I did. I slept there every night, and when I didn't, my husband did. Mm-hmm. One of us slept there every single night. For how long? How many alive. nights do you guess? How many nights? Yeah. Oh, in two years, maybe we were home... Six months at most. Wow. You know, I mean... So this was your other your other house. Yeah, we lived family. there. I mean, when, in, when he was doing his initial chemotherapy, we were at Overlook Hospital in Summit, which is kind of a community hospital. And, excuse me, they, um, they used to leave his room. I mean, his room was decorated, I mean, literally like a regular bedroom. And uh, when we could go home for two days between treatments, they would just leave his room and we'd keep coming back. This to sounds the like a wonderful spot. hospital. We were very, very lucky. Yeah, and that, Heidi, that brings me to an email. I'd like to read this email to Lisa because, I mean, to, yeah, to Lisa because I think it's really kind of what we're talking about. And by the way, uh, we love getting your emails and uh, you can send it to us through the grief blog. It's an email from Susan from Salt Lake City, Utah, and she said, I saw you were going to do a show about having a child with leukemia, 
And uh, Susan says that my four-year-old daughter died of leukemia last year. I frankly feel bitter towards the medical system. We went in and out of hospice care at home, and Wendy had to deal with a different staff each time we left the hospital. It makes me cry just to think about it. So did wow. you did you have any of those problems with people? No. We were really lucky that we had the same medical team each time. You know, obviously the nurses changed shifts, but... Basically, everything was the same. He didn't go into hospice care then? They, it didn't really, it, we're talking um, nine years ago. Mm. There really wasn't a whole lot of pediatric hospice at all at well, that time. In some ways, it's probably lucky that Susan had that. Yeah, pediatric, I mean, that's kind of one of my, one of my passions that, you know, I'm trying to work on is to see if we can get, you know, in our area in New Jersey, there's, no pediatric hospice, and um, it's pretty scary that there's nothing out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I think California, they're trying to change the laws now so that um, right. all over the nation so that the same sta- that you can have the same staff right. when you go in and out. So yeah. hopefully, Wendy, that will happen. And um, I think Lisa is a perfect example, when, I mean, Susan, of how you can, Susan who sent the email, of how you can get involved in your own state. And I think you might want to look into Utah and see what they're doing about keeping the same staff. I know there's a whole bunch going on in legislation. So it might be a place where you can impact, don't you think, Lisa? Definitely where you can impact. And even just going to whatever the hospice was and explaining what the situation was, and sometimes they don't get that feedback because families are so upset and are grieving and they kind of walk away and they don't get the feedback that could help them change it for the next family. So even if you go back to where you got your care and be able to give them some concrete suggestions, that might make you feel better if the next family doesn't have to go through the hell that you went through. And also tell them what they did that you liked. Absolutely. That's important as well. Yeah, you want, and because people who are working in this field are generally pretty good-hearted folks and uh, right. any people who work in pediatrics. So if you can give them, um, Susan, if you can give them some feedback and positive and negative, that would be mm-hmm. uh, probably a great thing to do for you. Well, I think that takes us a little bit to your foundation, too. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your foundation, why you did it, how you got involved in it, and, um, and when you started it? Um, I started it about six months to a year after David passed away. Um, I just couldn't sit and do nothing, and I realized I needed to make some changes in things that I saw um, in the hospital with physicians. And so we sat at my kitchen table with all of my friends and said, okay, this is what I want to do. Who's going to help me do this? And uh, they all did. A good friend of mine is an attorney who is an accountant. They got me through all of the legal stuff, and um, I was able to hook up with Gary Walco, who at the time was the uh, head of psychology at uh, Tomorrow's Children's Institute, which is the cancer uh, place at Hackensack, Children's Cancer Service. And... Uh, he was enormous in getting me to kind of focus on goals. I, he knew that pain was a problem. Let's try and do this. And then basically what you have to do is raise money and raise awareness. And we did golf outings. I did craft fairs. 
um, basically for three years it was my full-time job. It was all I did. And I realized as I was doing it, I was also healing. Mm-hmm. And, and and tell us why. Why do you Because think? I was able to take the focus off of myself and my own sadness and try and focus more of my energy on other people and how I could help them from being in that same spot that I was in. Now, when did you start doing this? Um, how long after? It was about six months after. It was January of 99, mm-hmm. and he died in August of 98. So six months later, you got a group of people I, together and started you started it. talking. Yep. That's that's great. I mean, you didn't jump in and do it right away. You couldn't. It takes a long time. It I takes couldn't. a while to There's do it. There's no possible way. I think... It finally, when I finally realized that what I needed to focus on was David's life, not David's death, mm-hmm. is when it turned around for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds very simplistic, but no, it is it, it the hardest doesn't. thing in the world to do. Mm-hmm. Now, I think all of us who have lost a child somewhere or, in, you know, think about, do I want to keep going or do I want to stop? Right. And I, for me, it's a very clear-cut decision about, what do I want to do? Do I want to die and lay in my bed, or do I want to get up and face the world and deal with this? Because there are not a lot of choices, are there? There aren't a lot of choices, and you really just kind of have to decide. And for me, it was, I have this beautiful daughter. I have a phenomenal husband. I need to I need to move forward. And that Heidi, is I, I wanted to ask Heidi, Heidi, from the sibling point of view, do you feel like the same thing happens? Oh, absolutely. I think my, my own story is very parallel to Lisa's where you, I didn't want to live and I thought, okay, I didn't want to be in the pain I was in. I, I wanted to have the pain leave and so I was like, you know, what am I going to do? I can either live or I can, or I can be in a fetal position and, and hope that I die eventually. And at some point I decided I want to live and how am I going to make purpose and meaning out of my life? And it's what Lisa said, I'm going to reach out to others and help them, you know, heal so that I can help myself in return heal. And it sounds like Rachel's done it through her art and through her... Um, the right. Things that she Rachel has always been very creative, and that's where she put her energy. Well, I also love that Rachel's doing the acrobatics, and I feel like she's, like, in the heavens. I don't know that sounds strange, that's, but I kind no, of... No, like, that's a wonderful but, image. Yeah, and she's kind of, like, reaching out in a positive way. Before we go to break, could you talk a little bit about the heart? Oh, uh, we had a heart in our family that was called the Healing Heart. David had had a ski accident, and uh, I had just bought it, and I kind of put it around his neck, and I said, you know, if you, this will be all the family strength and love, and it will get you through this. And kind of after that, everybody who got sick, oh, I want the heart, I want the heart. And uh, it was this turquoise heart on a, you know, black silk cord, and when David was first diagnosed, one of the first things he asked for was the healing heart. Uh-huh. So, hence the name of the foundation. And where's the heart now? Uh, buried with him. Ah, I love that. Hmm. And we each have our own. Oh, you each have your own we heart? We each have our own heart. Um, on the year anniversary of David's bone marrow, he bought his sister um, a little, the little Tiffany heart. Uh-huh. And um, the next day was Valentine's Day, 
and my husband and David bought me the bigger ones. So my daughter and I have matching ones. Um, when David was in the ICU and dying, my husband realized that he didn't have a heart. So the child life specialist made this little clay medallion and put my son's fingerprint into it. Oh my! And painted it for her, for him, and he keeps it in his pocket so that all four of us could share the heart strength. Uh, one thing I want to say is you're just such an inspiration. I mean, here you went on with your friends to do the foundation and spent, what, like three years doing that, and now you've then you decided to go back to school? Yeah, I went back to school uh, two years ago. I was now, how, tell our audience, how long has it been since David died? Uh, David passed away in 1998, August, so it's nine years. Okay. Um, so say, well, just to give our audience an idea, for three years, <clears throat> what you did, the foundation. Right. I mean, I still five do years. that, not as not as focused, but I still do, you know, do that. Intently, um, for them to set up a foundation, uh if, if they de- if someone here gets inspired by your story and decides okay I can do a foundation, it's it's a process, right? It's a huge process. It, there's a lot of legal things that need to be done and need to be incorporated and board of directors. I mean things that like all you want to do is go raise money and make it better, but unfortunately there's a lot of legal stuff because you do need to be tax exempt and it needs to go through all government regulations. So it is a process. So you could either set up your own foundation or you could go and help somebody else with their foundation. Absolutely. Right? And there's a lot of us out there. <laughs> so how would people get in touch with you if they live in the New Jersey area or anywhere? Yes. They could go on to your um, uh, website? Excuse me? Uh, they could go on to your website to find you? Absolutely. They can go on the website and or you can email me directly and I'm more than happy to help anybody at any time. Now the the uh, foundation is www.thehealingheartfoundation.com. Correct. Um, and so then you went back to school a couple of years ago, which would be what seven years after David died. Right. And I I had been working in doctors' offices, doing patient education, doing lots of things with the foundation, and doing speaking, and realizing that really what I loved was the social work aspect of it, and. So I went back to school, I got my MSW, and um, now I am working at an agency. And what I'm doing is I'm working with older adults doing end-of-life uh, you know, things and other social services and case management, which is totally opposite of my foundation. But uh, I'm trying to keep myself out of my box a little bit, um, trying to keep myself out of that comfort zone all the time and not get too settled in one thing. Because that's when I end up going back to those deep, dark places, and I don't want to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. And our, some of our audience <clears throat> at times um, make the comment that one of the things that you lose with the child that is a positive thing is a lot of fear about your life. You're willing to take a few more risks. Did you find that? Absolutely. Um, I've done more traveling and... You know, I went and met my daughter in New Zealand, and she took me on swing bridges over gorges and hiking in glaciers, which if you had asked me, could I have done that, I would have said absolutely no way. And um, it's really taken me a lot further, and I think the person that I am today is much more content in who I am because I understand 
I understand where I came from so much better. And you're not afraid to, to speak candidly and openly with your clients about end of life. Absolutely. I, it's a very comfortable place for me. I'm not afraid to die anymore because I've seen it up close and personal. Mm-hmm. And it's just not a fear for me, and I'm okay talking about it. That's, that's great, and I'm sure you're doing that great work with those folks. It's interesting to me that you've gone on to do to work with adults, and I like the idea of getting out of the box. And and, and I hope what our audience is hearing is the newly bereaved. You got to take care of yourself, right, Lisa? Oh, absolutely. Um, there is no way I could do this immediately. You need to take care of yourself. You need to kind of you know, kind of refill your tanks, your spirit. And then later on you can you can start taking little steps to to move out and uh, then go back to school or whatever the kind of the sky. And, and you is. also started the David Center for Pain and Palliative Care. Yeah, talk a little bit about that. Right. That's the pain service at Hackensack University. And we are doing some pretty exciting things there. We're working on building up our palliative care service there. We have a committee of all of the pediatric directors that meet. Um, Gary Wolko is the uh, the head of the David Center, the director. Um, we've hired Susan Cohn, who works in the pediatric ICU. And what she does is she meets with every family, especially of families who are terminally, who have terminally ill diagnosis. And she helps the families and kind of is the negotiator between the physicians and nurses and the family. And she can, do they want a lot of communication? Do they not want the information? Um, And it really has made a difference. And she's paying attention to the children's spirituality, which is huge. Now, that's a a different thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, we're trying to get some data because I think, Unfortunately, hospitals are based on data and funding, and unless we get some hard data that these are things that are needed, it's not going to happen. So that's what we're doing. We have some research studies out in other pediatric centers, so it's pretty exciting. Um, so, so if people wanted to kind of volunteer or find out, find out what you're doing for their own community, how would they do that? They can either go onto the website or they can email me directly. Okay, and you want to give? Do you want me to give you? Yeah, your email? I can give you my regular email, which is um, L S S N, which are initials. L is in Lisa, right? S is in Sam, S is in Sam, N is in Nancy. Sixteen at Comcast dot net. So if you hear something uh, just today, if you've heard something that makes you think that that might be some area you want to go into or you want to know more about, please do get in touch with Lisa. Yeah, I am more than happy to communicate with anybody. Well, Lisa, we've been so happy to have you on the show today. It's been really fascinating hearing about the things that you're doing and, and how you've the, the story of, of your son's death and, uh, and the, all the heart-rendering things and how your family has moved along through this. It's a a very inspiring thing to everyone out there. And and again, we want to thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell my story and to uh, be able to talk about the foundation. I truly appreciate it. And both of you do amazing work and are inspiring as well. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Lisa. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.